I personally don't think that they had a case there, but it is really indicative of how questions of authorization can be unclear and how uh, CFAA threats can be thrown about when researchers don't play ball and the pressure that a large company like that can bring to bear on an independent researcher. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about good faith hacking and where it can still get you into trouble. Good faith hacking is pretty much what it sounds like. Hacking efforts by individuals who want to not only find vulnerabilities in software tools, but also disclose those vulnerabilities to the responsible parties so that fixes and patches can be deployed. It's almost like taking that whole see something, say something campaign and applying it not to unattended bags and airports, but to common flaws in online infrastructure and software. We've had guests who engage in this type of hacking on this very show. When we were joined by Katie Masuris of Luta Security, she shared a story about how she found a vulnerability in the app Clubhouse that let her eavesdrop on conversations without revealing that she was an attendant in those conversations. When we sat with the hacker Sick Codes, he spoke in detail about finding multiple vulnerabilities in the networking tools behind John Deere's move to smart agricultural tools like their tractors and their combines. By prodding and testing the boundaries of software, these hackers are seeing something amiss, and then they are saying it out loud. But as it turns out, that whole equation isn't always so simple for hackers themselves, and that's because there is a legitimate fear that this type of work could result in significant legal trouble for these hackers, or at the very worst, It could even put them behind bars. Today, to help us understand when and why good faith hacking sometimes draws legal ire, we're speaking with Harley Geiger, Senior Director for Public Policy at Rapid7. Harley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We're excited to have you on today's show as well. And so let's just get right into it. Like I said in the intro to the show, There are folks out there who do this type of research, sometimes also called white hat security research, where they are looking for vulnerabilities. They are kind of testing software that it's out, it's it's released to the public, and they're trying to find out what could go wrong with it. You know, are there certain vulnerabilities there? And I've spoken to some of these folks in the past, and they've shared that they're afraid of any legal repercussions they may face for what they consider, right, again, to be this good faith hacking. Uh, The question I have here then is, what are these hackers worried about? What are the fears? It's gotten better than it used to be. And I think that it's important to recognize that there has been progress in the laws and adoption of bug bounties. But that is incomplete, and it certainly doesn't cover all instances of good faith hacking, and many laws are still unaddressed. I think, in general, it's fair to say the fear is that the act of conducting security research, even if you're doing it for a beneficial purpose, uh, or the act of disclosing a discovered vulnerability, whether you're disclosing it publicly 
uh, or disclosing it to the vendor will result in legal action. And that legal action could be private lawsuits or criminal charges. And it's not just a successful lawsuit or a successful prosecution. It's also just the threat of it. Uh, if a security researcher does not have institutional backing, like a legal representation through an employer, then just fighting a lawsuit that has been filed or dealing with an accusation can cost the researcher significant sums in legal fees. There was something that you mentioned there, right? That it could be, there's a threat of of both private lawsuits being filed against someone, but also criminal charges. For folks that don't know like the difference between those two, uh, don't know the legal system or how it works, can you briefly explain, right? Like what's the difference between getting criminal charges? What's the difference between a, a private lawsuit? So a criminal charge would be something brought by a government, right? So brought by the FBI or brought by the police. A private lawsuit can be brought by uh, somebody who's not associated with the government. It could be a company or another individual. So the government has the power of criminal prosecution, but you know a, a company does not have that power. But the company can file a lawsuit and it would still be uh, very expensive to beat back that lawsuit. Yeah. Do we have real stories of this happening in the past? You know, things that folks point to and say, look, this happened to so-and-so. It, it isn't safe for me. What kind of stories do we have that illustrate this concern? There's lots of examples that demonstrate how our computer crime laws are are very broad and how they can create liability. I think one that I, I tend to like, I find is very illustrative of the problem, uh, is the experience of a researcher who goes by KF, uh, Kevin Finister. Uh, and the Chinese drone maker DJI. Uh, one of the reasons that I think this is such a good example is that KF documented this very well and made the documentation public. This was in 2017, uh, but essentially DJI had a bug bounty program. Uh, they did a really sloppy job of explaining the scope of the program and KF sought confirmation from DJI that their cloud servers were in scope of the bug bounty program. And DJI seemed to confirm that they were, but it was kind of an out of band, almost out of official channel uh, confirmation for the program. And so KF submitted a disclosure detailing how DJI had left some of its AWS keys publicly accessible. If the keys were obtained by a malicious party, then they would have access to a lot of customer information. Uh, DJI then asked KF to sign a really unfavorable non-disclosure agreement. And KF said that he was walking away from the bug bounty program rather than sign that agreement. And at that point, DJI's legal department uh, sent him a nasty letter putting into question whether the cloud servers were in scope of the program to begin with, uh, despite the confirmation that he had received and telling him to destroy all of his research and saying that there was no authorization for him to conduct that research and that DJI reserves the right of action that it has under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Now, I personally don't think that they had a case there, but it is really indicative of how questions of authorization can be unclear and how uh, CFAA threats can be thrown about when researchers don't play ball and the pressure that a large company like that can bring to bear on an independent researcher. Do we know what happened afterwards? Like, was KF okay? Like, did he have to fork over like tens of thousands of dollars to defend himself after this? Because it still feels like there's a there's a loose thread there. <laughs> He put out a, 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 like I said, a great documentation of the, the the experience that he had with DJI, and not 
without some risk to himself, just the the disclosure of the of the discussion and the issue, um, it did gain a bit of uh, media attention, and uh, DJI eventually uh, backed off from the CFA threat. He was not sued under CFAA. Um, it is, though, uh, like I said, it's a it's a it's a good example. There are others out there, and you know, under a variety of different laws, um, some of them sometimes it's criminal prosecution, uh, such as the experience of the coal fire pen testers, and sometimes it's uh, threats of lawsuit. Um, and so, you know, there there are you know, real examples of uh, security researchers who um, have gotten into. Uh, trouble or complications and harassment even um, because of their research. You mentioned they're the coal fire pen testers. What is that story? Coal fire is a, a cybersecurity company and they had a pair of uh, pen testers that were authorized by the uh, Iowa uh, courts to uh, conduct a physical penetration test. And they were able to uh, get into an Iowa courthouse and as part of this physical pen test and uh, law enforcement showed up and uh, when they did they talked to the to the officers who seemed to kind of understand what was going on that this was uh, part of a you know security test that the uh, Iowa court information system had had actually wanted but then the sheriff showed up and the sheriff i guess did not buy this interpretation of the of the contract and uh, took the two physical pen testers uh, who were employed by coal fired uh, into custody and they They spent uh, 24 hours in jail. They were charged with burglary and uh, eventually they uh, were released and the charges were dropped. Uh, But it was like several months later before the charges were dropped. And in in the meantime, there was a a great deal of of back and forth and and legal wrangling, as well as uh, potential questions about uh, security clearance that one of them had uh, by virtue of being a, a former Marine. I think that in some ways this looks a lot like just sort of local government agency turf wars, uh, and it's and it's not technically a hacking law crime. Like this wasn't a, this was a, a burglary charge as opposed to a, a computer crime law charge, um, but it it goes to show that you know, the act of security research, or in this case, a penetration test, uh, can uh, implicate a number of different laws. I think that. Definitely goes to show, as we'll talk about a little later, that there is overlap here. It isn't that there's one law that gets cited repeatedly, and it's and it's the one law that is used over and over again. It's actually that this kind of work seems to have an overlap with various laws that, that could be violated. But before we get into that, I wanted to focus, perhaps ironically, on one law. <laughs> um, and that is because when I've spoken to security researchers on this show, they mention something that you mentioned. They mentioned the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA, and even not on the show. When I speak to folks, when I go to conferences, when I talk to hackers, when I speak to hackers from different countries, they mention, oh, America and its CFAA. There is this kind of reputation that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is what's going to land them in jail, is what's going to put them behind bars, or at least is what's going to trigger, you know, is going to allow a party to bring a legal enforcement action against them or, or a lawsuit. Broadly here, you know, what is it? What is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? When was it passed? Let's just understand everything about it that we can. 
Uh, be careful what you wish for is a very complicated <laughs> law. Um, but it, it is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, it's the main U.S. federal anti-hacking law. So this is at the national government level. It was enacted about 38 years ago and has a list of nine different prohibited activities when it comes to computers. And it also has a very complicated set of penalties and um, ways that the penalties can jump in severity depending on the on the the conduct. And it is both a criminal law and a private law. So that is to say, you can have civil penalties where a company can bring a, a private lawsuit under the CFAA. And it is also a law that allows for federal prosecutors to prosecute criminally. And a short list of what it prohibits are unauthorized access to a protected computer. Um, you'll hear unauthorized access a lot or, or lack of authorization really a lot um, when you're looking at the CFAA. So unauthorized access to a computer that doesn't belong to you and exceeding authorized access to a computer that doesn't belong to you. And we should touch on exceeding authorized access again later because what that means has recently evolved, but also intentionally damaging a computer that does not belong to you uh, without authorization. So that doesn't just mean hitting it with a bat. It can mean uh, also DDoS. It could also mean just changing some of the some of the code uh, on a computer that doesn't belong to you and that you don't have authorization to access. Trafficking in passwords or accessing a protected computer to commit fraud. And a protected computer is a phrase that essentially means every computer that connects to the internet. It is it is essentially every every computer. But the, the, the key here, again, is, is authorization, and it, is, it really comes down to computers that are owned by somebody else. If you're doing it on a computer that you yourself own, then it is not likely uh, that you are violating the CFAA. I think that it's become so famous around the world in part because of the, uh, the attention that has been uh, brought to it by different stories, uh, different instances where it was used very broadly, but it is certainly not the only law out there that constrains hacking activity. I think it's interesting that, right, the things that we focused on here that, that you mentioned is, you know, if you're using like your own computer, it, it's about unauthorized access or, or, you know, lack of authorization on computers, on machines. And that, to me, doesn't sound immediately like what some of these good faith hacking efforts are. And, and by that, I mean, right, I don't see people, I don't know people that go to like a company, like they infiltrate a company and they use an actual machine owned by a company, it feels like they're using their private machines to test cloud servers to see, you know, if AWS is set up correctly, if there, if there are keys that can be obtained remotely. And I guess what I'm curious about here then is like, that's my image of what hacking is. Am I missing something here when CFAA is cited so frequently? And I know you kind of touched on it, but yeah, am I am I just missing something here because that that image doesn't line up with what I just heard from the CFAA? Yes, I think what's the sort of the missing link here is that although you may be using your own computer to conduct the research, you are also while using your computer accessing uh, servers or uh, other computers that don't belong to you. So even if you are looking at the uh, AWS keys of a company, these keys are held on a server, you know, that it belongs to the, the company, even though you're looking at it through your own computer, you have accessed the other company's computer. Um, and if you don't have authorization to do that, then 
it is potentially a CFA violation. And the question of authorization can get sticky when it is something that uh, doesn't take any sort of special access or special skills to uh, get into the computer, uh, like it's publicly accessible, uh, perhaps through a vulnerability, or um, maybe it's even intended to be publicly accessible. That has come up in the past as well. That is the missing link, I think. We touched on it a little bit there. Like you said, it can get sticky. And this is a broad question that I assume has like a million answers, but <laughs> just got to ask it, what is the lack of authorization? Is it based on whether or not you were given a password or whether or not you have like access privileges within your company? And this is a lot of questions, so uh, take them as they are, right? But I'm just kind of thinking it through out loud. You know, is it like, can I hack my own company even though I work for my company because I didn't have those access privileges? Or is it also like the use? You know, can I hack my company? Can I violate CFAA? If I'm going into something that I do have access to, that I do have authorization for, but not authorization to do the thing I eventually ended up doing, right? So like committing insider trading. Like, yeah, I have access to that information, but I'm using that information to commit a crime later on. All of these things, right? I'm just trying to wrap my head around how do we define the lack of authorization? So that is something that courts are still wrestling with. It's not defined in the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, that is the, the term authorization or, or without authorization. And it was recently the subject of a, a Supreme Court case. This was the, the Van Buren case that was a landmark case on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And authorization can mean a few different things. It can be interpreted to mean uh, that you are blocked from accessing a computer or accessing files by a terms of service agreement or an acceptable use policy or some sort of other written contract like your employer agreement. Or it can be interpreted to mean, well, you're blocked from accessing these files because you are blocked by a technological barrier like a login requirement or something like that. Um, or maybe it is that you're not blocked from accessing the files, you're just, you can access the files. You just can't use them for certain things. Like you need to use them for work. You can't use them for personal purposes. And uh, some of this is still up in the air. So the Van Buren case before the Supreme Court, this was decided um, about a year ago. And that case stated that the question now under the CFAA is not whether you have authorization to use the files for something. If you have authorization to access them for one purpose, then it is not a CFA violation to use that, that data, use those computers, use those files for another purpose. But the Supreme Court was silent on whether or not, and, and intentionally silent, they, they noted this in a footnote, they were silent on whether or not authorization could exist just through contracts or whether it could exist, uh, it must be through a technological protection measure. And so that's still up in the air. But it does uh, shed some light on the question of whether or not a violation of a terms of service when you have an authorization to use a, a computer, like a publicly accessible computer or a work computer or, you know, or a school computer, uh, whether violating a contract that constrains your use of those computers, whether that's a hacking violation. And I think it's good news for security researchers as well as ordinary internet users that the court found that it does not constitute a CFAA violation. It's important for ordinary internet users in part because if our use of a computer that we have access to is 
constrained by terms of service and violating those terms of service is a federal hacking crime, then it's sort of ordinary internet activity that we would expect, uh, you know, in modern use of internet services um, could then be CFA violations. So for example, lying about your identity on, on Facebook or you know, lying about your height on a dating profile, you know, things that are, that are against normal terms of service should not be federal hacking crimes uh, if you have access to that service. And the, that's what the court had, had ruled. I wanted to try and just better understand the tangible aspects. What happened? Like, who is Van Buren? What, what was he alleged to have done? What did the Supreme Court review of his activity? So Van Buren was a police officer and Officer Van Buren uh, needed some money and he uh, turned to a man who uh, uh, was apparently uh, known to uh, be connected to prostitution rings uh, in his jurisdiction and uh, said that he needed money. The man uh, then went to the FBI, uh, in fact, and uh, then went back to uh, Van Buren and said that, you know, I will give you several thousand dollars if you look up an individual on the state's license plate database. And so Officer Van Buren had access to that license plate database for his work. Um, but of course, he was not authorized to use that database for personal reasons, let alone for bribery. Um, and but he he did look look this up and gave that information to the uh, to the individual. And Van Buren was promptly arrested by the FBI. And he was brought up under exceeding authorized access. I mentioned that we should return to that. So exceeding authorized access was possibly the the most broad CFA provision. It's the one that folks were very concerned could mean that well you have authorization to use you know, your work computer, but you use it in a way that exceeds authorized access. So you use it in a way that uh, your work prohibits. Suddenly you're a, you know, you're a hacker. And um, actually it was brought under the 11th circuit, which uh, had interpreted the CFA broadly. Courts had disagreed about how broad the CFA should be interpreted and he was convicted, but they appealed. It went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will often take cases where different Courts, different circuits around the country disagree on something. And here, this question of you know how broadly to interpret the CFA was something that different circuits disagreed on. Uh, and the Supreme Court sided with the circuits, the courts who interpreted the CFA narrowly. So they overturned Van Buren's conviction, saying, yes, this was this was clearly wrong, but it was not a CFA violation. And what they said was, if you have authorization to access a computer for one purpose, like Van Buren did to access it for work, then you're not exceeding authorized access to use that computer for another purpose. And the court was, uh, in part, uh, swayed by the implications of uh, having a broad CFAA on ordinary consumers that suddenly, you know, violating terms of service is a hacking crime, you know, violating acceptable use policies is a hacking crime. The Supreme Court said that if you have authorized access to files or parts of the computer, then you may use them for uh, other purposes without violating the CFAA, even though you may be violating contracts or other laws. But it didn't say whether your authorized access to those files or computers could be confirmed through an acceptable use policy or terms of service. So for example, if you had terms of service that said, uh, David does not have access to these files uh, at all, or this computer at all, uh, does that qualify as authorization? Even if 
there's no barrier. There's no login requirement. The computer is right there. Is that still a federal hacking crime if you then go and look at those files or use that computer? Or does it need to have some sort of technological protection barrier, like a login requirement or encryption or, or something like that, in order to qualify as stopping your access, you know, relegating your, your access? And the court has, has left that unanswered. I think that that is going to be a court split, a circuit split going forward. The Van Buren story is interesting, not just because of the Supreme Court case, um, but also because he still committed like bribery. Like He still did something else that was bad. And I wanted to use that as an example to kind of broaden it out here, right? We've been talking about CFAA for quite a few minutes, and it's helpful to understand that in the act of hacking, there are other laws that you could violate. I wanted to understand the landscape out there. What else could be violated during the act of security research, which I understand, again, is probably like a million things. Um, but what, you know, what's again, what's the kind of landscape that that folks are dealing with? Sure. There are, there are several laws out there that uh, apply to security research. So just a couple. There's uh, Section 1201 of the DMCA. Uh, that actually does have a, a new uh, security researcher protection, but it does not protect researchers in some instances, such as when they are sharing tools uh, that enable researchers to circumvent technological protection measures to software. So things that would enable you to get around encryption or uh, get around login requirements. You're seeing some of that uh, through the uh, Apple versus Corellium case that is currently being litigated. Uh, some other examples are the Wiretap Act. I think that's a really important one that is uh, prohibits intercepting electronic communications in transit. Um, so if your research involves uh, catching uh, electronic communications content through the air, um, then it may be a wiretap via, uh, act violation. There's some others, Defense of Trade Secrets Act, um, unauthorized disclosure of classified information if, if your research involves classified information. But I think one that is an example that's really important are state computer crime laws. Because we, we talk about the CFAA, and I think a lot of folks are not acutely aware that there are maybe 50 other CFAAs out there. Um, all the states, all the states have computer crime laws. And we've just discussed uh, one way in which the CFAA has been narrowed through the Supreme Court's uh, Van Buren decision, but the state computer crime laws are not affected by that. The CFAA's you know, history in the courts is completely separate from how the states will deal with their their own laws. And in many cases, they use similar language to the CFAA. And in some cases, it's more broad. Um, and this came up uh, as a uh, pretty, pretty recently in Missouri. Uh, this is the, the now infamous case where a, a journalist with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch had discovered a vulnerability in a web application with the Department of Education, the State Department of Education. This had actually put social security numbers of educators at risk of public disclosure. And the newspaper disclosed it to the to the agency, uh, the, you know, very responsibly did not uh, make it public initially. And uh, somewhat amazingly, the governor of Missouri uh, had announced a criminal investigation into the newspaper and called the journalist a hacker 
and then sort of repeatedly doubled down on these accusations. Uh, law enforcement looked into the case and eventually dropped it, but it was a it was a pretty pretty significant example of how uh, state computer crime laws, even if there is no no harm and it was it was beneficial to uh, to the uh, all parties involved, um, can be used uh, to target a vulnerability disclosure. Wow. I had heard of that, you know, tangentially, but even hearing the story again, it's like, I'm not a lawyer. I haven't read these laws. I'm going to be perfectly honest. Um, But you hear it and you're like, that feels wrong. You know, even as someone from the outside, I'm glad that it didn't move forward, but it's another one of those things where this is extremely disruptive to a, a person's personal life. And for weeks, I assume they're dealing with a level of stress, a level of headache that they should not have to deal with because they didn't cause any harm. You know, they were doing in their mind what was the right thing. The CFAA gets a lot of attention, um, but I I really encourage folks to take a look at the uh, state computer crime laws. So Missouri and Maryland are uh, some, a couple of good examples uh, there. Uh, they they forbid disclosing a password without authorization. In the CFAA, you have to if you are trafficking a password with intent to defraud, then um, that is a CFA violation. But there doesn't have to be any intent to defraud uh, in under uh, Missouri and Maryland laws. And so the, just merely the act of disclosing without authorization can be a violation. And we know that security researchers will look for for example, hard-coded passwords in IoT devices. Um, these are, you know, put the public at risk because once the password is is discovered, then suddenly uh, many IoT devices that share that hard-coded password can be accessed without authorization. And uh, but if the act of disclosure without authorization is itself a crime, then it makes the vulnerability disclosure that much more difficult. I wanted to move to something that I think is pretty important because we've talked around it a lot, but we haven't kind of addressed it head on. And specifically, like you mentioned, right, with um, Section 1201 of the of the DMCA, you said that, right, there's, a, there's an exception for security research. And we've spoken a little bit here about, you know, like good faith hacking, about security research. How do we define what that is? Like, do we have a legal definition of what constitutes security research? We sort of do now. It's very insider baseball and very uh, boring to, I think, to a lot of folks. But for many years, the cutting edge conversations about what is good faith security research, how to define it, and you know how, what sort of uh, protections you know, should apply, were happening at the copyright office. And they were happening on, uh, because of uh, rules that were being considered under Section 1201 of the DMCA. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into sort of why they were having these conversations because it's pretty complicated, but they were coming up with rules to uh, protect uh, good faith security research under Section 1201. And it was over the course of six years, they have landed on a definition that is uh, pretty good. Uh, we think, and is, we're now seeing it being used in uh, other contexts. So they define good faith security research as accessing a computer only for purposes of good faith testing, investigation, or correction of security vulnerabilities or flaws. And when you're doing it in a way that's designed to avoid any harm to individuals or the public, and then the information that you get from that activity is used mostly, primarily, to promote security. 
And not doing it in good faith would include things like uh, extortion uh, or um, intentionally causing damage. And so there are boundaries to this definition. Um, but that is, that is uh, it's not perfect. Um, there is, are questions like, you know, what does it mean if you're to only be accessing the computer for purposes of good faith testing? What if you're being paid to do it by your employer? Or if you want to bring this information uh, before a, a hacker conference, for example. Uh, so there are, are still some questions with the definition, but by and large, we think that it has a lot of the major pieces correct. Yeah, I think it's particularly important. Uh, the reason I think it is right is because I took a class a while ago about the law around journalism, you know, and the law like First Amendment rights. And one of the things we learned is that for a long time, it seems like the courts really didn't want to define what a journalist was, um, what the act of, right, there's this term news gathering. And they didn't want to define it because maybe it might separate folks into having rights that are protected that were not, like you would have one type of person who had a right that another person didn't, and that felt wrong. Like that was not the right thing to do, particularly with something like freedom of the press. And so I just know there was a lot of like working around it. Like we can't define what a journalist is because then that might bifurcate rights or it might lead to, you know, an interpretation that bifurcates rights. And I felt the same way about this. I was like, how are we to say what is and isn't good faith hacking? And it, it feels like it's a difficult thing to define because of what it might leave out. That's all. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and it is, it is difficult, I think, to prove a negative and to prove intent. But at the same time, I think that the, it's important, especially in this context, uh, to have to make an attempt at defining it because we know that uh, there is a real adversary out there. There are cyber criminals and they are smart and they will try to game the system. And uh, they can pose as uh, security researchers when, in fact, they they are not. And so, uh, having a a definition that um, does set some boundaries, um, I think, is is uh, helpful for then attaching protections to those definitions. We've been talking a lot about CFAA. We've been talking about the Wiretap Act, twelve hundred one DMCA, but there was another part here that we didn't get to discuss that I wanted to understand, which is that. After that Supreme Court case, from my understanding, we had like a policy shift from the Department of Justice, right? The folks who would be responsible for bringing prosecutions against folks who had, you know, allegedly violated CFAA. So essentially, you know, the folks who are responsible for saying, hey, you did something wrong under this, they revised their approach. Can you help me understand what, what was that revision? What, what happened here? So in, in May of 2022, uh, the Department of Justice, for the first time, changed its CFA charging policy to protect uh, good faith security researchers. Uh, the CFAA charging policy is essentially uh, the uh, the factors and the and the uh, rules that its prosecutors are uh, supposed to follow um, if they are going to charge somebody under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And this change says that 
a, a federal government attorney should decline to prosecute defendants who intend to uh, undertake good faith security research. And the definition that they use of good faith security research is borrowed from Section 1201 of the DMCA. Uh, there is, are rules there to protect good faith security researchers. And if you meet that definition, then you are the government is supposed to uh, decline to prosecute. Now, that it does have some limitations. So the prosecutors can still consult with um, uh, the attorney general and uh, CSIPs about uh, whether or not these factors have been met. And uh, this also does not. And so there, there is still the possibility that uh, prosecution uh, could occur if it's a very gray area. Um, but I think just as important, this has no bearing on whether or not a security researcher can be sued by a private company, um, because this is, remember, this is for, uh, this is a policy change to government prosecution, and it has no bearing on uh, whether or not security researchers can be sued under states, uh, state computer crime laws, uh, because this is a federal uh, computer crime uh, charging policy change. Um, so uh, it is it is not a complete coverage, but I do think that it is really worth pointing out that this is a significant degree of progress from the Department of Justice. And I, I would also note that you know, th this change to their charging policy that occurred in uh, this past May, it follows a couple of other things that DOJ had stand up for security researchers. They worked with the Copyright Office as well as uh, NTIA and, and, and several other agencies to push for security researcher protections under the DMCA. It is, it is part of why we have security researcher protections under that law now. I always think it's important to try and wrap things up if at all possible. Um, and one of the things is that, that, I'm, that I'm curious about here is, you know, for like budding security researchers out there who have listened and they're like, I still don't know, you know, they still have some of the same concerns. What would you tell folks, you know, if they're concerned with that, that one big question of like, will my research land me in any legal trouble? I would tell them to be careful. It depends on what kind of security research you are, are planning to undertake. And it, it depends also where you are. Uh, the laws in the United States are different than the laws in uh, China, for example. And uh, so, it, you know, when in doubt, do do research and uh, contact the lawyer. And I uh, think above all else, make really clear that uh, what your intentions are, what your expectations are. Don't ask for money without making clear that this is not an attempt at extortion. And uh, it's best to not access the computer that belongs to somebody else uh, unless you have permission to do so. That's like a pretty good way to, to wrap it up, to simplify it, right? For something that isn't simple, like you said, it's it's be careful. It's know what you're doing. And my goodness, what a, you know, obvious landmine there. Um, don't, you know, don't, don't like trade what your information for money, like in a threatening way. Like don't, <laughs> don't commit extortion. Uh, something that we should all take to heart in our day-to-day -day lives. I think it's the best way there is, is just be careful and be clear with your intent. Don't kind of scatter around once you've found something that, you know, could lead to helping people out. Harley, I wanted to thank you again just for coming on today's show and for explaining everything that you did. Thanks so much for having me, David. I really, I really enjoyed talking with you. To our listeners at home, 
We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we discuss the new security and digital privacy landscape that is facing the U.S. population following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at blog.mauerbytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin Megliar from Incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from Unminus.com. Today's show was edited by Eric Johnson from LightningPod.fm. Thank you, folks. <laughs>